Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Infertility is on the rise, and we often discuss solutions for diving deep to investigate what could be impacting infertility. There's a lot of hope out there for many women who have been told they can't have children for medical reasons, and there have been many cases of children conceived through the great intervention of NAPRO technology. We have Dr. Susan Caldwell and other guests here often on the show to talk about treating and working with infertility. But on the rise is also people who have been unable to have children. And it's, I think, a whole group of people who often it's isolating. Some people will say, well, just adopt or you're better off without children. Very insensitive topics and comments that can come up on this. And as I've been thinking about this lately, it's a deep and abiding sorrow for many many women and couples who can't either conceive a baby or carry a baby to term. So what do you do when you find out you really can't have children or haven't been able to for years after trying? What are the next steps? What does healing look like? How does this impact your marriage? Joining me today to share her story is Emily Simpson Chapman. She's the author of the children's book, Mary Mother of All, a recent book that I love. And we'll share with you about another book coming out soon. And there are many other books that she has written. We've talked to her before about eating disorders and identity. I'll link to some of her incredible testimonies here on Trending. But what I want to talk about today is fertility. Now, Emily, I've never actually heard your full story of infertility. However, some years ago, you made a comment to me when you were getting ready to adopt a couple of your children that healing from infertility is a separate thing from choosing to adopt and it's not a solution and I was fascinated by that comment and it's always rung true with true in my mind since then and talking to many friends and people I know who have been in similar shoes as you so I'd love to hear your story and start out at the beginning when you got married welcome to trending yeah yeah, thanks. It's great to be here again. Uh, so I married a little bit later in life um, and leading up to, to our wedding once we were engaged and we knew a wedding was coming of being my very type A choleric self. I was like, all right, well, I got to see the NAPRO doctors and get the hormone tested and get all the vitamins and do all the things. Um, and just because I wanted to hit the ground running, so to speak. Um, and I did that all. I started the diets and taking the supplements, saw the NAPRO doctors. Everyone was very encouraging. It's like, no, you look great. You should be able to conceive no problem. Uh, but we got married and one, two, three, four months went by and there was no baby. And so being, again, my choleric self, I went back to my NAPRO doctor. I said, okay, you know, I, I want to be serious about this. What do I need to do? And we did um, we did an exploratory surgery, which is often done 
um, fairly quickly when you're older at trying to conceive, just to make sure there's no endometriosis, no blocks in the fallopian tubes. Um, they found a little bit of endometriosis, but said, nope, you look great. We should see you back here in six to six months to a year and with the baby. Uh, well, with a, you know, being pregnant. And again, that did not happen. Um, and so we went on, gosh, what else did I do? I went on hormones. I went on Femera, um, progesterone, you know, just everything that we could do napro-wise. I saw an acupuncturist. I saw a holistic medicine doctor. Just really trying everything. Um, and no baby, no baby came. So it was, you know, when you're older and trying to conceive, I always say every month is like a year uh, because you see that clock ticking. And, you know, we are, here we are seven years later. And although we have adopted three beautiful babies, I never, I never did get pregnant. So there was, there was no happy surprise pregnancy for us. Emily, your story is similar to many women I hear, and yet we don't really talk about the raw side of, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying. Like you said, a year is what a month feels like as you go through each month, hopeful, you're trying to do everything in terms of timing to conceive a baby. What was that like for you and your husband as you were navigating the emotional side of that roller coaster? You know, it's such, it's such a, it is a roller coaster because there's the start of the month where you're, you know, you're like, okay, we're going to try again. And then you try again and you're hopeful and you're walking around for a week or two weeks thinking maybe this time, maybe this time there's a baby and then there's not a baby and it's just devastation. And in those days, you know, after the, the start of my cycle every month, every time there was a negative pregnancy test, I was just, I'm a choleric. So my first response to everything is anger. <laughs> so I was just so angry. I would want to burn the whole world down. And then you're feeling guilt because what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? Um, you feel like a failure, you know, especially I've spent so much of my adult life writing about the theology of the body and women's call to motherhood. And I just felt failed by my body. I felt like I was failing my husband. I felt like I was failing as a Catholic. You know, there's all this additional pressure within the church mm -hmm. to, you know, praise of large families. I love large families and they're beautiful and generosity can be such a wonderful thing. And so you feel like, oh, I'm failing. Like people are going to think I'm not being generous. They're going to think I'm choosing not to conceive. They're thinking I'm choosing not to have babies. And it's just a big old mm -hmm. tornado of emotions for, mm -hmm. you know, for most women. And that judgment of assumption can be so hard. Sometimes our worst enemy when we're comparing, we're comparing what we think other people are thinking versus what we know is actually going on. If you're joining me now, that's Emily Simpson Chapman. She's sharing her fertility journey with us today on Trending. If you have a question or a story to share, our toll-free line is 888-914-9149. Emily, you mentioned just that pain of feeling like, okay, I'm not conceiving children. It's that experience of well, what's wrong with me. I feel like a failure as a wife and a woman. Can you talk a little bit about how there had to be a turning point for you where you started seeking healing? And I'll contextualize this because I think it's relevant. I know that you now have children, three children, beautiful children via adoption. But one of the problems that I often hear from people is if they hear about infertility, they say, well, why don't you try IVF, which we talk about that a lot here on Trending, the negative elements, both on the impact of the mom, the danger to the baby, and also that abortion is a part of that process, along with creating a human being, a new baby outside of the context of 
marital love. And so I want to set that aside. If you're interested, we'll post the link to some of those conversations we've had, even with someone who's had babies via in vitro fertilization. But then the other side of it is, well, why don't you just adopt? And people almost blasely throw that out there, Emily, of like, just adopt. And yet you're dealing with this festering wound of going, I feel like a failure because my body isn't doing something. So can you talk to me about how to navigate those comments of, well, why don't you just adopt and how to find healing and peace and maybe even what to say when navigating those conversations with people? Yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard. And people want to help. And I would always remind myself of that. when I would hear people say, well, if you just relax, you know, or I have this friend, it, people always say these crazy things when you're, and they're trying to be helpful. They're trying to be helpful. And so you try to bear, bear it patiently. Um, but the problem is, is that, how do I say this? Adoption and infertility are two very different things. Um, and now adoption, like there are parts of, there are things with infertility that adoption has absolutely like filled that need, you know, the desire to mother, to love children, to be a family. Adoption does, does meet that need, but there's different griefs with infertility. There's the grief of not not being pregnant. There's the grief of not seeing a child that looks like you and your husband. There is just the grief of all your years, decades of dreams of, of being a mom and giving birth. And you have to mourn those and realize that adoption, it, adoption doesn't fix those. It, adoption, I don't know how to say it because they're so interrelated. They're not separate. But when people would say that to me early in our infertility journey, it was so frustrating because I would have loved to adopt. I really would have. Obviously, we did. But we couldn't at the time. <laughs> we were looking at these huge costs of adoption, and the, it just seemed like an impossible thing. It was like, no, you don't get it. Like I, I'm grieving the fact that my body can't give birth to a baby whether or not we can adopt is a separate question. Like that's not going to solve the fact that I have to grieve that my body is broken. You know, my body is, my body is not doing what a woman's body truly is meant to do. And so once you grieve that you can move on to it, start thinking about adoption. You can start thinking about other ways to exercise spiritual motherhood, recognizing that spiritual motherhood is not a consolation prize. It is what all motherhood points to, but until you start, the grieving and healing process from infertility, it's very hard to see what other avenues are open to you and to do it in a way that's healthy and not like, oh, mm. fine, this is my plan B, second best. Like you never want to approach adoption like, oh, this is my right. second best option. That's well, not a way to welcome a child into your family. And part of the problem with, and this is a side note, the adoption culture today is that we think of adoption as, oh, this is great. This is a child for maybe people who can't have children want to have more children. But what is adoption? And I think this is important as a faithful perspective. It's creating a home for children who need a mom and a dad. And we tend, I think, in our current culture facing infertility to flip it the wrong way around as a solution for parents rather than a solution as it should be for children who need a home. That is exactly right. Like when you were talking about adoption, you're talking about a child that already exists, a child who has rights. And that child has to be first and foremost in the minds of everybody, you know, parents, birth, adoptive parents, birth parents, social workers, when you're thinking about adoption. Like it does not, I mean, infertility can be a sign from God that he, 
he has another way for you to walk. Like it can be an invitation to adoption, but adoption is not a fix for infertility. It's not for the adoptive parents, even though the adoptive parents are blessed a million times over by it. It's for the good of the child. And when you approach it from that standpoint, like this is for the good of the child, then everybody acts differently in a more Mm -hmm. ethical way. I want to come back to adoption in a moment because I think there are some key questions that people sometimes have and feel pressure with regarding adoption if they haven't been able to conceive children and carry to term. But before we go there, I do want to touch a little bit more on grieving. You made a comment earlier, Emily, that grieving that you were not able to have children, you felt like your body was broken and you're grieving that idea that your body is broken. For women, if you're struggling here do you consider your body's broken? Is that something you acknowledge? Like, what does healing look like in that experience? What did healing look like for you in that acknowledgement? I mean, it, I, I don't think there's any, like, some women don't like to think of themselves as broken, but, like, your body's not working. Like, your body's made to produce a baby, and it's not producing a baby. There's a physical problem there. Things are not working as they should. And for me, just accepting that that was a fact just as much as if I had cancer or MS or some other sort of disease. Like it wasn't my fault. It wasn't anything I had done. This is just a result of living as a human being in a fallen world. Um, But probably the most healing thing for me was um, in, gosh, I guess it was November, 2017. I was writing studies for the woman's group in Dow and they asked me to do a study on Humane Vitae, Pope Paul VI encyclical against, you know, that reiterated the church's teachings against artificial contraception um, because the 50th anniversary was coming up. And the last thing I wanted to do when I was struggling with infertility was write an encyclical talking to married couples about why they shouldn't be using contraception. But I said yes, because we need the money. And as I was writing, you know, I was talking to married couples about how they had to trust God with their fertility. You know, that really was, you know, we had to give God everything. We had to trust God with our fertility. And I realized that the same applied to me. Like, I had to trust God with my fertility. I had to trust him with my infertility. I had to recognize that nothing was beyond his power. And that if he wanted me to have a baby, I would be having a baby. But he wasn't healing that brokenness in my body. And so he had something beautiful he was going to bring out of it. Like, God doesn't permit any suffering that he can't use. And as I learned to trust him with my infertility and accept that, you know, he had plans that were different than mine and better than mine, that's really when our hearts were ready to start moving on to adoption and God opened those doors. Hmm. And what, what was the timing like for you in that process? Because is it different? I know it's different for everyone, but kind of giving this that mindset of like giving yourself that time and that space so that you're not feeling rushed through the steps of grieving or rushed into adoption. It is going to be different for everyone, which is why I'm so hesitant to reveal what our timing was. It was immediate. So I was writing that study in December of 2017 and we were offered the chance to adopt our, our first son, Toby, in on January 6, 2018. <laughs> so, like, really, as soon as we were like, okay, Lord, we trust you. We love you. We know this will be good. God's like, here's a baby. And, well, here's another baby. And here's another baby. And it all happened so fast. You know, we adopted three babies in two and a half years. But my timing is not going to be everybody's timing. Like, God works differently with everyone. 
And we were ready to move towards adoption when we did, but that's not going to be true of every couple. Mm. Now, Emily, you're very optimistic and open and hopeful in sharing your journey. This is a real wound for a lot of women. What has enabled you to be able to be so candid and sharing and to embrace this state in life where you're at so joyfully when a lot of women just have a hard time ever getting past this? So I was really blessed during the years I was single. I'm a writer. I wrote lots of lots of interview pieces and profiles and different feature stories for different organizations within the church. And I wrote a lot about infertility and I talked to a lot of infertile women. I talked to a lot of adoptive couples and so many of the people I spoke to who were struggling with infertility talked about it as the hidden cross, you know, something that so many people were ashamed to talk about because they felt Mm, responsible for it. They felt the same sort of shame. Like I I'm doing something wrong as a woman, as a wife, as a Catholic that I felt, um, and knowing their stories helped me so much. It helped me remember that I was, this was, a, this was a cross just like any others. And it wasn't one that I'd asked for. It wasn't one that I deserved. It just was part of life in the broken world, in this broken world. And I, I received so much strength and so much comfort from those previous conversations that there was no way I could not share my struggle. (laughs) I felt like I owed it Mm -hmm. to other women who were going through it to let them know that they weren't alone and that God loved them and that he was working through this and that this was part of their path to him if they could trust him. And the more I did that, the more healing came my way. I think, you know, Satan really works at us when we keep things to ourselves. He likes Mm -hmm. to play upon our fears and play upon our shame and play upon, you know, just our feelings of not being enough and being a failure. And when we bring those things into the light, when we speak what we're struggling with, God can start to work. And so I receive healing through talking about my struggle with infertility. And I believe other women, you know, they don't have to write articles and books and essays about it or do radio interviews about it, but sharing it in a healthy way with people who love them really is a way that grace can start to work in their lives. And yeah, it's there's so much grace and there's so much healing when you let God into it and when you see that this cross is a way to be united to him and to really enter into the life that he has planned for you that will lead you to him. And so I always say infertility is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me. I mean, it it drew me closer to him. It taught me so much about him and it's part of the journey to my babies. And I would walk through those horrible infertile months every day, a hundred times over to be my children's mother. That's Emily Simpson Chapman sharing her story of infertility. We're going to come back with Emily talking about infertility's impact on marriage. If you have a question for Emily or a story to share, the number is 888-914-9149. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. We're talking about facing infertility. What happens when you cannot conceive? We talk a lot about solutions to try and work on underlying health conditions impacting fertility, such as 
our great NAPRO doctors who are there to help. And I'll link to an episode where we've talked with NAPRO doctors on how to get pregnant, even in the face of challenging medical circumstances. Today, however, Emily Stimson Chapman's joining me. She's a writer author of some great children's books, among other books, new books coming out, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I do love her book, Mary Mother of All for Children. It's a newer book on Our Lady that she co-wrote with Scott Hahn, Dr. Scott Hahn. Now, I want to turn back to your story, Emily. You've been sharing about healing, walking through that healing journey after trying and trying to have children. I know that you've adopted children, but one of the big impacts on marriage is fertility, especially infertility. In fact, one woman called in a few moments ago and shared, I love the topic. I'm 54, was married. We couldn't conceive. And that was a huge hurt for our marriage. Emily, can you speak to the impact infertility had on your marriage and ways to walk through your marriage with this cross as you've shared? Sure. You know, when you're you're trying to conceive, that your vision can become very myopic and your focus in within the marriage becomes like, we must conceive a baby and it's all about the baby and all of your intimacy, all of your conversation, your schedule, everything can be planned around the baby. And when that is not being successful and the wife is grieving or the husband is grieving and neither of you quite know how to communicate with the other or help the other, it can, can start to drive a wedge between husband and wife. Um, I think one of the most helpful things you can do as a couple is one, keep those lines of communication open. Like you have to, as a husband, you have to, as a wife, be able to handle the other person's grief, which requires a lot of grace and sticking close to the sacraments and abiding in the Lord so that you can be strong for the other person, even while you're suffering. Um, but I also think you need to take breaks from trying to conceive like some of the best. Yes. Yep. Some of what really helped our marriage was just months where we would say, okay, you know what? Uh, we're not charting. We're not timing intimacy. We're not, I'm not eating special diets. I'm not taking hormones. Like we're just going to live our life and love each other and not think about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually part, it's an, an important part of healing in general from infertility because you step back and say, okay, I'm not, I am trying to control this situation and I have to accept the fact that I am not in control. God is in control and we have to surrender this to him. And when you can do that together, when you can surrender together and lay, you know, just really kneel down at the foot of the cross and suffer with Christ, that does bring you closer together. That does start to bring healing. Um, I have a really great husband who I think his greatest struggle through infertility was just feeling like he couldn't, he couldn't make me happy. Like I desperately wanted this child and we couldn't figure out a way for, he was like, I can't give you the child. I don't know what to do. And so his guilt and my guilt, you know, were, could have driven us apart, but because we communicated, because we took breaks, because we just kept surrendering it to the Lord and recognized that we could not control the situation. um, Our marriage was stronger through infertility when it easily could have been the opposite. Emily, I appreciate where you mentioned, especially like, Sometimes you just have to take a break from trying to conceive. And I think this is key because I hear a lot of spouses, both on the wife and the husband's side, is that that at a certain point you almost feel like an object when you're trying so hard to achieve an end. The other person feels like a means to an end sometimes in that infertility journey. But also touching on grieving, 
a key thing that I've seen, especially both with miscarriage and with infertility, is that husbands radically have a radically different type of grief than women. And sometimes it's almost as if I'll hear some of my friends who share, it's almost as if he's not sorrowful, but he's dealing it very differently. Can you speak a little bit to how differently men and women process grief in situations such as these? Well, women are such integrated creatures. You know, I have I have two boys and a daughter, and my boys will feel emotions but never say a word. And I have this little two-year-old girl who wants to walk around telling me her emotions. I am sad. <laughs> I am happy. I feel better now. I am annoyed. And she, like, she has this profound desire to articulate what she's feeling. And I think that it, you see a little bit of that with infertility, where men are feeling things, but they're not articulating it. And women are feeling this like deep down in our bodies because we are meant to carry life in our bodies and we feel that life that is supposed to be there is not and we have to communicate it and it's just it's a it's a very different experience for women where I think women do feel it and can articulate it more because of our you know our feminine genius our orientation towards creating life and nurturing life within us whereas men it's more of an outside experience and they can detach from it a little, but that doesn't mean they're not grieving. It just means that they're, they're a little more removed from it. Another thing that I want to pick your brain on, because I recently had an experience, a couple of friends of mine who are trying to have children going down the NAPR technology route, going down the holistic uh, medicine route to work on healing and health in their bodies, both the husband and the wife to potentially have children in the midst of this journey. Uh, someone knew that they're trying to have children uh, knew, you know, Hey, they don't have children yet. And there was this adoption opportunity that came their way. And it was interesting because I've seen this happen, Emily, where sometimes people think, well, okay, you can't have children. Therefore, I think that you should have to adopt this baby if the opportunity arises and if I come to you with it. Or you have to take on this ministry project because you don't have children. And there's almost this judgment of, well, your time's free. You don't have kids. So you should take a baby from adoption. You should take on this project. Can you speak to the freedom in acknowledging, okay, I am not having children. Maybe I can't have children and not being pressured into other things people think you should do because that's not where you're at in life. I don't think you should be pressured into things other people think you should do, but I do think you need to go to the Lord and ask him what he thinks you should be doing. You know, it needs to be like, okay, God, I would like babies, but there are no babies coming. So, what would you like me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my desire to nurture people and love people and mother people? Like how, how would you like me to be spending my time? Um, I think infertility is a cross that is an invitation and it is an invitation to love in a different way from what you, how you expected you would love. And if you are not taking that, like going to God and saying, okay, what are you inviting me to? Um, you will be very frustrated with other people who are inviting you to things um, because you won't be secure in what you are being invited to. When you know what the Lord is inviting you to, or that's something you're, you're very confident. All right, I'm talking to Jesus about this. We're good. Thank you. You're not going to get as frustrated by people who are coming to you saying, you should do this or you should do that. Because you're like, well, that would be lovely. But right now Jesus is telling me I should be doing something else or thanks, but I'm talking to Jesus about this. So that frustration is going to come when you're really not in conversation with the Lord about what he is inviting you to. It's not the other people's fault. It's, mm -hmm. That's more your issue. 
that you mm-hmm. have to you have to resolve because you need to be confident in what God is inviting you to. And if you're not, that's a sign that you're still very deeply wounded and you're not completely surrendered to the Lord and confident about what he's calling you to. And we're called to the virtues that God calls all of us to, and I think especially of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, peace, joy, uh, being hopeful, patient, all of these things are so key. And whatever your particular journey might be, if that is infertility, isn't that key, especially when you share it in the reaction to different things people say to you that are so rude or to things people think that you should do because you have free time or the comments people make of, well, oh, you're lucky you don't have children because this is how hard it is. Such insensitive of comments that ignore the true crosses you're sharing of infertility, but also the joy that I hear in your voice, Emily, of sharing how you've navigated it. And even now with having chosen to adopt children, the separation between healing from that wound of infertility and then embracing welcoming children into your home, not so that you can fix your infertility, but so that you can help care for children who need to be placed with a mom and a dad. Yeah, like, (laughs) I am a choleric who says the wrong thing all the time, Timory. Like, I, if I think about all the things in my life that I have said that are stupid or wrong to people when I'm trying to be helpful, (laughs) I I would just lay down and die from shame. And so, really, when we've gone through the infertility process, you know, the adoption process, the stupid things people have said to me about my adopted children in front of me, um, I've learned I can't. I can't control what people are going to say. I can't stop people from saying stupid things because really good people say stupid things all the time. Mm. It's human nature. Mm. What I can do is bear wrongs patiently and offer up any irritation or anger or sadness I feel when they say those things. I can offer those back up to the Lord in reparation for all the stupid things I've said. Mm. Um, and I think you know we spend a lot of time saying, oh, don't say this. Don't say that. Someone's going to say the exact opposite thing of what they should say, no matter how many times we say that. Like, we should try to be sensitive to others. But when we're the ones suffering, like, you just have to make the best of it and offer it up to the Lord because people are going to be saying stupid things to you until the day you die. And if you don't learn how to handle it with grace and love and charity, you're going to be a very frustrated person. That's Emily Stimson Chapman sharing her journey of infertility here on Trending. Emily, thank you for sharing your story. On a side note, I love one of your more recent children's books. You're the author, co-author with Dr. Scott Hahn of the children's book, Mary, Mother of All. My daughter loves this book. It touches on all the key Marian, um, Marian teachings of the church. It's beautiful. It's vibrant. I'm going to post a link to it here on social media as well as in the episode notes. You can just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, where we're also tagging Emily. Uh, but Emily, share with me about a new book you have coming out in the next handful of weeks here. Yes, next week, November 2nd, uh, the second in my series of children's books that I'm writing with Scott Hahn is coming out. This one is called The Supper of the Lamb. It is based upon Scott's best-selling of all-time book, The Lamb's Supper, and it is about the glory and the beauty and the mystery of the Mass as we see it, you know, the plan for it unfolding from Old Testament to New, and it's done in rhyming couplets. So we're pretty excited about it. It comes out November 2nd from um, St. Paul Center, Emmaus Road Publishing. 
Fabulous. I'm posting a link to the new book, The Supper of the Lamb, and to your already published book, Mary Mother of All. I know that The Supper of the Lamb, by the way, is available now for pre-order if you are interested. Or, yeah, it is available for pre-order. So if you're interested in picking that up, be sure to get one of the first copies. These are great books to pick up ahead of the Christmas season as well. If you're starting your Christmas shopping, I know I am. And these are great books to start if you have books that you're picking out for kids. So, Emily, thank you for joining me today on Trending. I appreciate your candidness and your story. We're posting links to your books. And if you have a question for Emily on fertility, be, please be sure to check her out on social media. Coming up next, we're going to talk about how to steps for starting a new friendship. But November's around the corner and we're going to be praying for the holy souls in purgatory. So be sure to submit your names of your loved ones at relevantradio.com slash souls. That's relevantradio.com slash souls so that we can pray together for our loved ones in the novena here at Relevant Radio between November 2nd through the 10th. We'll be praying during Mass, Chaplet, the Family Rose Across America at Relevant Radio. So please join us in praying together for our loved ones. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We're struggling today with loneliness and isolation. And yesterday on Trending, we discussed with Father Nathan Cromley the difficulty in making new friendships and the need to do so. Today, I want to dive into how the how-to steps for starting a new friendship because I think that there's this lost art of how to respond when someone is interested in developing a friendship or just how to pursue friendships. I think social awkwardness is very common or just social skills are lacking. So I think this is something that's helpful for all of us, even if you're in a season of seeking out and needing new friendships or to remember to be a little more aware of when someone is seeking a friendship with you as well. Now, it's interesting because there's an article I read from Radiant Magazine by Dixie Lane and Kate Moreland, and they highlight two key areas where people comment are the killers in terms of trying to make new friendships. One is time, and the second is the lack of reciprocation. First of all, they have some tips, three tips on the whole time issue. And some of them include just letting go, one, of letting go of your hospitality standards. They comment, you know, simple things such as wipe down the toilet, throw out the rotten things, and let that be simple. You know, it's funny. I was reading in the article. They even said, even if you have a bunch of dishes in the sink, just pile in some water and some soapy water so that you can't see them. I thought that was really funny. But I get that. Like letting go of your hospitality standards of being hospitable, but not trying to be a perfectionist, which brings me to one of their other points of the three. They say, try to be more relaxed. Let go of the perfectionism. And I've learned this really over the last few years, because I'd love for my house to be very clean. I don't like seeing things out. Clutter tends to stress me out, yet <laughs> my humility with children now 
And I've learned to sometimes don't always just jump up so quickly to tidy things up or to take a dish so quickly. There's a balance between hospitality and making someone feel like they need to be ushered out of your house. And so I've tried to be better at enduring a little bit of the mess, not worrying so much if someone comes over and every single dish isn't just wash but actually put away as well. I think that there's a lot to be said of letting go if that is part of what's getting in the way of taking the time to enjoy friendships. Also, one of the things if you have kids, the comment was to cut back on some of the activities with the kids. Sometimes we're running at a million miles an hour and that was what we discussed yesterday here on Trending that often what happens is there's this need to fill our time because sometimes we're avoiding spending the emotional capital on trying to develop those new friendships because it's not easy. And I get it. I lived in the Midwest for a couple of years, really knowing no one. And I spent a full year having a really hard time with making friendships until I got really blunt and asking people over to my house, even though I hardly knew one of these, some of these people, or even saying, hey, if you know someone, trying to get connections to build up friendships, it was throwing myself out there in a very uncomfortable way at times. And so I appreciate these tips for what to do when there's a lack of reciprocation when you're seeking out friends. Because truthfully, people can be awkward. I can be awkward. And sometimes we just don't know what to do in terms of reciprocating. So sometimes pushing Pushing things forward more than maybe you might be comfortable with and seeing how they respond with a little bit of that pushing is helpful. So in this list, in this article in Radiant Magazine by Dixie Lane and Katie Moreland, the first thing they said to do is to actually introduce yourself and make sure you give your first and last name. And if you enjoy your conversation, exchange phone numbers. Don't be afraid to just ask and give your phone numbers. And then here's the follow-up. And I really love these key tips for follow-up. First, Follow up a few days later, not right away, with an invite and be really clear with a time and a place. And I loved this one. They said, really plan your time together and give an end time. And so they actually commented on just letting it be an hour. They said, don't make this get together an emotional four hour intimate event. And sometimes I think this is the problem with friendships is that we have such a deep desire to connect that we put too much pressure too soon. Keep it simple just invite someone over. And again, your hospitality standards don't have to be so high. You don't have to make someone a meal. You can do tea and fruit and nuts. I love my tea set. I use my tea set all the time. In fact, my husband's friends have thoroughly embraced and appreciate now my tea set because I'm always offering them tea when they're over. And other things, you don't have to take people over to your house. You can also go to a park if you have kids. Do things that make it sometimes simpler on you that ease you into the friendship. And I liked where they commented, have an end time. And do things such as after an hour, if that was your planned amount of time, signal that, hey, I have to get to another appointment. I have something I have to work on. Like concretely, like we planned this. I have to get going. But it was so nice to meet you. And then another comment that the writers made in developing these new friendships is if you have children and someone's coming over to your home or you're going somewhere, have boundaries with your kids. Remind them not to interrupt. Talk about what toys to take out and what toys that maybe should be kept away because that could cause a problem. All parents know what toys those might be. And then also letting your kids know where they can play so that you're setting up for success for hopefully not Madam Interruptus interrupting you the whole time. 
And then finally, they said, follow up a week or two later. Take some of the pressure off of you and off of them. And with that follow-up, plan another time to get together. Now, something that they commented on in this article by Dixie Lane and Katie Moreland, and I'll link to it on social media as well as in the episode notes, is they commented on how reciprocity, that response when you are reaching out and trying to make friendships with people, is a dying art. And you have to accept that you're going to have to do most of the initiating and building new friendships today. And I really appreciated this comment because I think there's a lot of, woe is me, people aren't responding, people are busy, people are too busy, we're filling our calendars with way too many things. And sometimes you just have to push through the clutter and be persistent. I think there is a big difference between thoughtlessness and feeling used when you're developing a new friendship versus a season where you're developing a friendship and you just have to continue to be that voice who's there initiating and getting through all the clutter and encouraging a get together. I think that's a great advice to remember that reciprocity really is a dying art and we have to accept that we might do all or most of the initiating, but acknowledge it should just be a season of time in developing new friendships. So I think that these are really key elements of friendship. We talked about some of the theology of friendship yesterday and how important it is for us to not give up on relationships, just not be overly focused on our need for friendship too, but to see the other person. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle have commented immensely on friendships and how important they are, but really focusing in on Thomas Aquinas emphasizes the need to love the other person, to will the good of the other person, to not just use another person as a means to an end. Which brings us to our Theology of the Body series. Much of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body is a theology of friendship because it's the theology of human anthropology. And at the end of the day, we are created as human beings for relationship. And that's been at the core of this series, which I want to turn now to the part of our Theology of the Body series we're walking through these catechetical talks, 73 through 86, where it's called celibacy for the kingdom of heaven or continence for the kingdom of heaven. And there's this question that's reigning. Why would someone choose virginity or celibacy? Is it even possible to remain in this state of life? Now, I think this is relevant, first of all, and I wanted to contextualize this because there's debate even within the church and people outside of the church that it's impossible for a priest to be celibate. In fact, I think this is a terrible argument, but I hear people pointing to this as the cause of the scandals within the church. No, that's called people being unfaithful to their vocation. Now, the secular culture embraces zero confines to sexuality, both inside and outside of marriage. Extramarital affairs, divorce, sex outside of marriage, porn, all of it's a norm today. And so I think that's why for many people, even inside the, perch, it, inside the church, it almost seems unfathomable to think that someone could remain chaste, that someone could remain a virgin. Even if you think about psychology, Freudian psychology has truly skewed perspective on this with this idea that people can't control themselves and that sexuality is all we're motiva- motivated by in life. Pope St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body 
builds up this understanding of continence for the kingdom of heaven, that is celibacy and virginity for the kingdom of heaven. He turns to the words of Jesus Christ, and he says this is key to the anthropology that we've been developing in Theology of the Body. He cites Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus says this, Not all understand it, but only those to whom it has been granted. For there are eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb. There are some who were made eunuchs by men, and there are others who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone understand this who can. So Jesus just laid out three types of people who could be living celibate lifestyles. One are people who were born with some sort of defect. By no choice of their own, this is how their bodies were. There are also those who were made eunuchs by people, by harmful people doing things against their will. And third, there are others, he says, who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're not talking about bodily mutilation, but we're talking about a sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's a state in life. It's a choice to preserve oneself, to value in a different way and give yourself in a different way in terms of your sexuality. So in Matthew 19, I want to focus in on where Pope St. John Paul II spends much of his focus in this idea of continence for the kingdom of heaven, that is celibacy and virginity. He says, others who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. In other words, there was a purpose behind their virginity and celibacy. The purpose is the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is a key element. And Pope St. John Paul II does, in a side note, mention that the question of continence for the kingdom of heaven is not set in opposition to marriage. Instead, it's not even a commandment where he says everyone should remain this way. Although St. Paul himself in his writings actually does talk about remaining single if you are, because you can focus on your relationship, just you and God, without all the additional things that come with marriage and family life that can be distractions from God, but also can be a means of a path to virtue, a path to union with God. So what this is considered when we talk about celibacy and virginity is a counsel of the church, and it's one that we should heed and consider. We shouldn't be looking at this from a Manichaean interpretation, which is a heresy where we reject the body and soul and say, oh, we can just reject the body and it's easy, just become a virgin or a celibate. But we also can't reject the soul either in this great sacrifice that is possible even in our bodily state here on earth. The choice of celibacy, Pope St. John Paul II says, for the kingdom of heaven turns us to look at the eschatological call of virginity for the kingdom. What he's saying is that when we have the perspective, and this is the part of the theology of the body we're in, we're talking about the resurrection of the body, the redemption of the body. In other words, all of human anthropology must be focused on the life of the world to come. That is on heaven in union with God in heaven. And so the perspective of considering and living out a celibate virginal lifestyle is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There's purpose to it, just like there ought to be purpose and sacrifice in a faith-filled element to marriage. It's at the core. That's why it's a sacrament, just as holy orders is a sacrament. Now, something that kind of blew my mind that I hadn't really pondered, but the theology of the body takes some time where Pope St. John Paul II walks through the example of celibacy lived out in the Holy Family by all three members of the Holy Family, Mary and her virginal conception and birth, 
Joseph, the most chaste and virginal spouse. Jesus, the virginal sacrifice he made on the cross. I never really pondered it, but if you think about it, I don't know what other way to say this. I'm sure Jesus Christ had prospects, people offering their children in marriage, women who were interested. But he, his mother and father, all chose to live, as tradition holds and scripture points to, a virginal life. A life where they saved themselves for the kingdom of heaven. And through that, they still served. And although in a very unique way in family life, we see this example in the holy family, the holiest people who have walked this earth, this sign of virginity. That's why when Pope St. John Paul II says when considering virginity and celibacy, we're looking at eschatological virginity from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven being lived out here on earth. What he's talking about, when we talk about eschatology, those are the end things. We're talking about union with God, entering into the kingdom of heaven. And that requires virtue. That requires being stainless without blemish. That requires purging of those things that are leading us to sin. But when Pope St. John Paul II talks in the Theology of the Body about virginity and celibacy, he emphasizes a number of things that I think we need to take into our attitude about virginity, celibacy, holy orders, religious life, that our current culture tends to have a Freudian mindset saying it's not possible. Priests should just marry. Here's what Pope St. John Paul II, diving into the tradition and scripture of the church, says it's possible by the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus himself says not everyone can understand this. This vocation isn't for everyone. Pope St. John Paul II says this choice is connected with renunciation and also with a determined spiritual effort. Like marriage, we could say, where marriage needs supernatural strength, this vocation needs supernatural strength as well. Pope St. John Paul II says that a person who lives this lifestyle submits his spirit when he chooses continence in the body, that is for the kingdom of heaven. I would also add, just pondering this, that it does require angelic intervention, that our guardian angels, in other words, and other angels, I'm sure, can assist us in living out a vocation of celibacy. Because we see this in scripture. Our Lady had angelic intervention with the angel Gabriel, as did St. Joseph, with angelic intervention in dreams. The third thing is, I think it's important that we understand that in the theology of the body, while there's been this hyper-focus on marriage and human anthropology and the complementarity between male and female and body and soul, that this isn't doing away with everything we've been building on in the last 13 weeks in the Theology of the Body series. In fact, even when talking about continence for the kingdom of heaven, celibacy and virginity, Pope St. John Paul II talks about how this is a fulfillment of the spousal meaning of the body because you acknowledge the sacrifice of everything that's being given up. And even in celibacy and virginity, spiritual motherhood and fatherhood can and should be exercised. It's similar to marriage in that there needs to be, as Pope St. John Paul II says, perfect conjugal love marked by faithfulness and gift. In other words, if you choose a life of virginity and celibacy, you're called to perfect faithfulness and to make and, trans and to be transformed into the image of Christ into the body of Christ to make that perfect sacrifice. And that's why this is only possible through the perfection of Christ, through the perfection of the church. That's why this is a choice. And sometimes choices are so frightening because we realize then that we're free through the grace of Jesus Christ 
to follow these higher callings, these great counsels of the church that are possible through the grace of the Holy Spirit. We'll touch more on living out the vocation of celibacy tomorrow in our Theology of the Body series and move on to great commentary from Pope St. John Paul II on St. Paul's call to be submissive to your husband and for a husband to love his bride as Christ did. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Justin Timberlake's family is under scrutiny after Britney Spears revealed in her forthcoming memoir that he pressured her to get an abortion when she was 19. Britney Spears also shared she took the abortion pill. We'll discuss her story of having taken the chemical abortion and the importance of healing from an abortion. Also on Trending this Wednesday will be tips for how to eat gluten-free. Join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.